Good morning, Cornerstone. It's a privilege uh, to be with you today. Our text is going to be 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 10. So just want to give you a moment to turn there. And while you do, you should know that uh, your church has been on my heart for a few years now. Um, about every month, Pastor Scott joins us over at King's Cross in Greensboro for a pastor's lunch. And he always uh, shares really encouraging updates and it's clear to me from these updates and getting to know your elders some that these brothers love you dearly. I think about uh, the Apostle Paul who told the Ephesian elders that they ought to keep a close watch on themselves and on all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. And it's obvious that uh, your pastors take that call seriously. So it really is no small thing for them to invite me to be able to come and share with you this morning. Um, it's a privilege to me. Um, I'm praying that God would be glorified in our time together. I'm praying that you would be encouraged. And if you're here and you don't know this living God that we are worshiping this morning, you do not have to leave today the way that you came. Our text in First Peter will have this one phrase, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And by God's grace, you can leave saying that this morning. Let's pray now and ask God for his help one more time. Father, apart from the vine, we confess that we can do nothing. You didn't spare your own son, but you freely gave him up for us. And so how will you not also with him freely give us all things? Surely, God, that extends to giving us help now. So would you help us to rejoice in the precious Christ and to make his excellencies known to those around us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Peter 2, verses 1 through 10 says this. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What is precious to you? And what do you proclaim as excellent? 
What do you declare with contagious joy because you love it and you want others to share in that love with you? Well, this passage is all about a precious stone, a precious stone that we should proclaim as excellent. First Peter 2 verses 1 through 10 calls us to do this very thing, to prize Jesus as precious and proclaim him as excellent, to prize him as precious and proclaim him as excellent. This will be a foundational passage for King's Church, which we hope to plant in High Point this upcoming fall. We actually got our name from this text, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say you did too, since Cornerstone is mentioned multiple times in this passage. And I love that we can be in two different cities, starting churches that began at two different times, and yet be drawn to the same passage, because in this passage, we learn about an identity and a purpose that we both share. Verse 9 tells us our identity. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, Cornerstone. That's who you are. That's your identity. But you and I have this identity for a purpose. Verse 9 says that you are this, that you may proclaim. You are this so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that's what you're here to do. That's your purpose, to proclaim the excellencies of God. So I ask again, what do you proclaim as excellent? May I just suggest that we will proclaim as excellent whatever we prize as precious. We all have something that is precious to us. It could be your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, your home, your car. Maybe there's a precious item that's been passed down to you from somebody that you love. And this precious person or this precious thing is something that you prize. You might call it one of your most prized possessions. And so often what we prize, we proclaim. That's why it's not hard for us to show people photos of our children and grandchildren and tell them about special memories and point out to them our favorite items that we've collected over the years. We proclaim the excellencies of whatever we consider to be precious. And this passage is all about Jesus being precious. I mean, verse 3 does say, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Verse 4 says, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Verse 6 mentions a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Verse 9 talks about his excellencies and marvelous light. So sure, this is a passage about proclamation. And I could stand here and I could tell you to go and proclaim. Go and proclaim. Over there is Wahlberg with people who need Jesus. Over here is Winston with people who need Jesus. Right behind me is an apartment complex with people who need Jesus. So go and proclaim. But before this is a passage about proclamation, it's a passage about a Savior who is precious. A Savior who's worthy to be proclaimed. And so we'll begin our time there this morning, prizing Jesus as precious, and then we'll turn to proclaiming him as excellent. Let's 
prized together, the different ways we see the precious worth of Jesus in this passage. And we begin not with Jesus being precious in our sight, but Jesus being precious in God's sight. Verse 4 says, As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Could there be a greater statement about the worth of Jesus than that? If He's precious in the sight of God the Father, there's really nothing else to be said. My opinion, your opinion on the matter, what is a human opinion when God has already declared? You and I have often found worthless things valuable and valuable things worthless. We are not the best barometers to determine the worth of something. We've called sin good and we've called holiness bad. Just think back to the very beginning. Eve saw this forbidden fruit and she thought it was good for food. It was a delight to her eyes. It was to be desired to make her wise. In this moment, disobeying God became good and delightful and desirable. Jeremiah says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So our thirsty souls have turned away from the ever-flowing stream of life. We've turned from pure drinking water, and we crawled to broken, mildewy, moldy bowls that hold nothing, and we called it good. It's clear that people saying something is valuable or not does not determine its ultimate worth. But God calling something valuable does. We could think sin is good while God calls it wicked and His view on the matter wins. We could treat someone as useless while God calls them an image bearer and He is right. We could call the gospel foolish while He calls it wisdom. Or like our text mentions, we could say Jesus is worthy of rejection while the Father calls Him chosen and precious. Who's right? God is. Jesus is the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And it's important that we start here because we need to remember that the issue is really not up for debate. God has clearly spoken. The only question is whether or not we will love and treasure and and prize Jesus as He deserves. You know, Psalm 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name, not the glory we think He should get. And so, brothers and sisters, think about this. That you call someone precious. You call precious someone that the world rejects. Someone the world denies and mocks and maligns. And there might be times when you feel all alone in loving your Savior. And in those moments, when you're tempted to despair or feel embarrassed or feel like you're the running joke at work or in your family, while all others go about their merry way, remember this, that the one you call precious is precious in the sight of God. You are not alone in this, and you are not wrong. 
before you ever uttered a praise or even breathed a breath, God the Father loved his son. And the love that you have for him, the very love that others call crazy, God the Father loves him more. This puts everything in perspective, doesn't it? And if you are here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, maybe you're trying to figure it all out. You're trying to decide if he's worth it. And I would just urge you and plead with you to go with God's judgment on the matter. You can rest there. You may not have all of your questions answered. You may not have every I dotted, every T crossed. But you can say, if Jesus is precious in the sight of God, he should be precious in mine. Rejected by men or precious to God. Who do you think we should side with? So that's the first thing we see as we seek to prize Jesus as precious. He is precious in the sight of God. But let's look at the other parts of this passage where we see it. We should also prize his precious goodness. His precious goodness. Let's read verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? And what's really meant by the word taste? It's a sensory word, right? An experiential one. There's a difference between thinking that a particular food must be delicious and having tasted that it actually is. I can even see other people enjoy the food and recognize that it must be delightful by the way they're acting. But until the spoon hits my own tongue, I can't say I've tasted that the food is good. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? If you're a Christian, I know you have. J.I. Packer asks a question in his book, Knowing God at the very beginning. Um, He says, have you known God? And he points out that that's a different question from do you know him? There's do you know God? And then there's have you known God? This year, this month, this week, this very morning, have you known him today? Have you gone beyond simply hearing about his goodness and actually tasted that he's good? Don't we want to be a people that taste the goodness of the Lord. But notice an important detail here in these first three verses. Verse 1 is telling us to repent of certain sins. Verse 2 is telling us to long for God and His Word so that we grow closer to Him and that we grow more like Him. And then verse 3 says to do these things. Do verse 1, do verse 2, if... Indeed, you've tasted that the Lord is good. So Peter doesn't say to put off sin just because. He doesn't say to grow in the word just for growth's sake. He doesn't tell us to seek the Lord because it's just our obligation. No. Putting off sin, growing in the word, seeking the Lord is something that we do because we've tasted that he's good. Our motivation is never guilt. Our motivation is delight. 
We don't do it because we find it practical. We do it because we find Jesus to be precious. We need to be reminded of this in every aspect of our lives. We don't just give ourselves and other people practical steps so that we stop doing bad and start doing good by checking off a box. Of course, we should give practical help, but that's not where the strength is. That's not where the power is. But if we've ever tasted the goodness of Jesus, then we will begin to hate the bitterness of sin. Sin used to be sweet to us, for those of us who are in Christ. Don't you remember how sweet it was? And sometimes we're still tricked into thinking it's sweet. But if you are in Christ, Cornerstone, you've tasted something better. We must fight at the place of desire so that every battle against sin is a battle to see Jesus as more precious. And every battle to read His Word and to pray together and to gather on Sunday and to do life with one another, even when you don't feel like it, this is ultimately a battle to see more and more of the preciousness of Jesus. Anything to see more of Him because I've tasted that He's good. What a witness this would be to a lost and broken world when people look at members of Cornerstone and King's Cross and Lord willing, King's Church one day and notice that we've lost our infatuation with what the world offers. Not because we hate happiness, we're just a bunch of grumpy people, but because our taste buds have tasted something unimaginably greater. We've tasted the goodness of the Lord. Now, as we read further, Peter shows us even more. We ought to prize Jesus' precious comfort that he secures for us. We ought to prize Jesus' precious comfort. Look at verse 6 with me. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Those who believe in the precious cornerstone will not be put to shame. You have to keep in mind that Peter's uh, recipients of his letter here were facing great suffering, often because of persecution. They were shamed for following Jesus and for forsaking sin. Shame for saying that the precious one in God's sight really is precious. Shame for thinking the goodness of Jesus tastes better than the bitterness of sin. I want to show you a few instances of this in Peter's letter. If you look at chapter 3, for instance, in verse 16, we read, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And we get something similar in chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. 
So they revile you and they malign you because you don't join in with the sin. All your life, believing in Jesus, the most precious one, you're being shamed. Shame on you for believing such things, says the world. Well, what does God say? I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is comfort. One day everyone will have to give an account to God. Those who hate Jesus and malign his ways, as we just read, will be put to shame. But those who've been shamed in this world for following Jesus will not be put to shame in the end. And so as you go from this place, even today, and you attempt to reach people with the gospel, you will probably be maligned. People will disapprove of your moves and hate your message and mock your lifestyle. But the scriptures are clear. Whoever believes in this precious stone will not be put to shame. So as verse 7 says, the honor is for you who believe. This is the precious comfort that Jesus secures, that though we are shamed by the world today, we will be received by God forevermore. So he's precious in God's sight. We've tasted his precious goodness and felt his precious comfort. And now we should prize Jesus because of his precious church. Look at verse 5 with me. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The church in this verse is referred to as a spiritual house. This group of people who are chosen, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, those who have received mercy, this group of people, this church is a spiritual house where God dwells. What does this spiritual house have to do with Jesus and with Jesus being precious? Well, in verse 6, we read, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Or verse 7, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So, the church, the family of God, is a spiritual house and brick by brick, each Christian, every follower of Jesus in this room is placed into part of God's grand design in this house. And the cornerstone of the house, the one on whom the whole structure stands, is Jesus. And this emphasizes the fact that he's precious. Just take a moment and think about what's lovely in the family of God. The church is called the body of Christ, where every Christian finds their place and is given gifts by the Spirit. We're talking about the household of God, where God dwells among us. The family of God, where He is our Father, and we are brothers and sisters of one another, where unlikely friends have become loving family through the gospel. The church is a city on a hill where God has given us good works to do before the foundation of the world so that others would see them and glorify our Father in heaven. 
And friends, it's in the church where we see that the enmity truly has been broken down between people, between people the world says should hate each other. Now in Christ, black and white, young and old, rich and poor are all one. And just consider the church gatherings that you've been to, whether it was in the old sanctuary down the hall, I believe, or the times that you've been meeting and gathering here or with another church that you've been a part of, songs that have been sung that have lifted your heart out of despair, prayers that have been prayed when you didn't have the words to utter them yourself, sermons that have been preached where you felt like you were the only person in the room, only to turn around and realize that there's a room full of people ready to help you. It's in the church where we have all things in common, where sin is confessed and lovingly rebuked, where we rejoice and with those of us who rejoice and we weep with those of us who weep. Just think of all the ways that you have grown, all the ways that you have benefited, all the times that you would have utterly fallen away, but you were encouraged to keep the faith by people in this room. Think of everything lovely in this spiritual house. And then remind yourself that it is only standing because Jesus is the cornerstone. Every single blessing we have would crash and burn without Him. And so every faithful sermon preached, every encouragement given, every prayer on behalf of one another, every loving deed done for you when you needed it most was all because of Jesus. And therefore, we can't help but see Him as precious because we've seen Him holding up, lifting up as the cornerstone, this precious people. So we prize Him. I want to direct your eyes to one more reason that we prize Jesus as precious. Uh, to be honest, the reasons are endless, but if I go on for too long, I'm afraid you'll never invite me back. So we'll stick to the context of 1 Peter 2. We should prize Jesus for His precious light. In verse 9, it says, To proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Reminds me of Colossians 1 where Paul says He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So we've been transferred into the kingdom of Jesus, a kingdom not marked by darkness, but by marvelous light. For some reason, from time to time, we forget this. We forget that this is true for us. So do you remember the darkness that you were in at one point in time? Titus 3 says, we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's the depth of the darkness in which we once lived. So how could we not say now that we live in marvelous light? Look, I know that there are times of dryness, times of feeling stale, 
Maybe you have seasons of being stagnant and dull. There are moments of despair and deep sorrow, but amidst all of these ups and downs and times of trial, make no doubt about it, Christian, you are in His marvelous light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So every day, wake up. Remember that you are a miracle of God's grace. Remember that you were called out of darkness. The darkness that you were in may be for you just a few years ago. Or back in college or in high school or when you were seven and eight, maybe you first heard the gospel. Whenever it was that he saved you, you were in darkness. And God shone in your heart the light of the gospel. Perhaps you're here this morning, and if you're honest, you're still walking in darkness. And the idea, the thought of marvelous light is appealing to you. Well, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. You see, the problem is that God is pure and holy light. We are separated from Him because of or darkness and sin. But that's exactly why Jesus came to us. I love what the Bible says about Jesus entering into our sinfully dark world. It says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. I almost imagine someone who's been trapped in this dark, miry pit with no hope of escape. Week after week after week, and finally a beam of light signaling hope on the horizon. Jesus came into our sinful, dark world, and He lived a pure, pure, holy life because He is light. And yet He took all of our dark sin upon Himself and paid the penalty for it on the cross. And He did that so that we could be forgiven and brought into His marvelous light. And that's why I'm preaching to you today for the same reason that God sent Paul to preach, to open their eyes so they would turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. Turn away from yourself and turn towards the marvelous light of Jesus. You will find him to be a very precious Savior indeed. We are to prize Jesus as precious. But we were never meant to behold his worth and taste his goodness and feel his comfort and love his people and walk in his light just to keep him all to ourselves. Instead, we are to proclaim His excellencies. Yes, prize Jesus as precious. In fact, I'm almost certain we won't do the second unless we do the first. Prize Jesus as precious, but proclaim Him as excellent. Verse 9 says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 
You ever wondered why it is that Christians risk their lives to take the gospel to hard to reach places? Why missionaries go to the Middle East where they could be imprisoned or killed for their faith? Why do people turn down great opportunities in the world's eyes to plant churches in Greensboro? Why does a couple who spent more than 30 years overseas with the IMB retire from the mission field? And instead of just coasting off into the sunset after three decades of labor for the Lord, they join a a core team to plant a new church in High Point. Why? Why is it that the Lord would even call some of you to take the gospel to the ends of the earth or at least to those right around us? Not knowing how they'll treat you in return when you finally have the conversation with your neighbor. I was reading your core values on your website this week and I was encouraged by this one section. It says this, we value and embrace a mission mentality because of the numbers of people around us locally and across the globe that do not know Jesus Christ. Current estimates indicate that there are still over 7,000 people groups that are unreached, approximately 2.87 billion individuals. John Piper points out that the reason for missions is that the worldwide glorification of God does not yet exist. Therefore, as a local body of believers, we are committed to seeing the lost come to faith in Christ and to God being worshiped among the nations. It's hard to say it better than you guys did. Think about everything that we just pondered together in this sermon. Jesus is precious in God's sight. We've tasted of his goodness. We felt his comfort. We've loved his people. We've been called into his marvelous light. We could go on and on about the excellencies of Jesus. I can almost guarantee you that we could open it up for a discussion and it'd be a lengthy one about all the passages of scripture that remind you of how precious he is. He's the bread of life so that whoever comes to him will never hunger. Or all things were created Through him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. I know you could mention passages where he fed thousands of people and he had compassion on the multitudes and he healed the sick and he commanded storms to cease and walked on water. Or where he sits at the right hand of the Father now, praying for his people. The excellencies of Jesus go on and on. We could never exhaust them. Yet, there are so many people right around where we gather this morning who've never even heard of these things. So many hearts who do not worship him as excellent. Therefore, we go and proclaim his excellencies. So let me ask you, as we close, who needs to hear you proclaim that Jesus is precious in the sight of God? Who are the people right around you at work or at home or in your neighborhood? People who clearly need to hear that even though Jesus is rejected by men, he's precious in the sight of God. And so they should abandon the world's view of Jesus and submit themselves to God's view. Who needs to hear you proclaim his goodness? Who in your life has been convinced 
that their sin is the most sweet-tasting thing in the world. And so they blindly run after it and run after it, still just as thirsty as before. Tell them that all who taste of the goodness of Jesus will be satisfied forever. Who is it that needs to hear you proclaim His comfort? Do you know anyone more concerned about their friends and their family and how they'll be thought of by them if they follow Jesus? And so what they need to hear is you proclaim the truth that if they would believe in Christ, yes, they might be mocked in this world, but in the end they will never be put to shame. Who is it that needs to hear you proclaim the truth about His people? Just a couple of weeks ago, I met a young man who spent some time with folks in our church, and he's not a Christian. Uh, He has not been to church in a while, but he got dinner with some of our members, and he told me with tears in his eyes, he says, Matt, I have never, ever eaten dinner with a loving family before. Do you know anyone like this? Someone around you who desperately needs the family of God? Let them know that they can be a part of the family of God if they would trust in the one who holds it all together. And I'm sure right now, you know, countless people walking in darkness, people who need to hear you proclaim that the true light came into the world. Cornerstone, you have come to prize him as precious so that you would proclaim him as excellent. Let's leave from this place today asking God's help to do just that. Would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks for Jesus. Would you give us grace to see all of his precious excellencies so that we would worship him in our hearts and make him known in the world? Jesus, you promised to be with us to the end of the age. So ultimately, this is your work. We ask you that you would do it in us. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.